We're back in Hebrews, so if you'd like to look there, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let me read them for us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Uh, Let me just stop there. In Hebrew, high priest is literally great priest. So when our author writes a great high priest, he uh, undoubtedly has that in mind. We have the great, great priest, the greatest of the great priests, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our author begins this paragraph with the word, therefore, and being good Bible students, we want to find out what the therefore is there for, Therefore, is usually a bridge connecting what's already been written with a conclusion the author is about to draw. In this passage, what's already been written is this, and and this is what the therefore conveys. In the light of the fact that we all will give account to God before whom all things are laid bare and to whom all lives are an open book, And because God's word goes deep right to our hearts, judging our thoughts and even our intentions, we ought to hold firmly to the faith we profess. In Greek, in this section, our author makes use of the word lagos, or usually rendered in English as word. In verse 12, he wrote about the word, the lagos of God, which is living and active and penetrates to the heart. At the end of verse 13, he used logos again, this time translated in the NIV as account, to whom we must give account. When God's living word enters our hearts, it elicits a response from us, an accounting. That word is our word, and it will pour out of us. We'll not be able to stop it. It's the word we must speak, the word of explanation, the account we give to God the judge. Now when we come to the end of verse 14, translated in the NIV as the faith we profess, we have another Lagos word, hamalagia, hamalagos, the same word, the word of profession or confession. It's not a confession of sins that's in mind here, but a confession of Christ because Verses 12 and 13, God's word will search and sift us and judge our thoughts and hidden intentions. We might feel we have to justify ourselves. Some people do. Their confession, the word that they hold firmly to, is a word of self-justification. So they confess that they've always gone to church. They confess that they've taught Sunday school. They confess that they've given money to serve the poor. They confess that they trusted in Jesus on a certain date in a particular church meeting. But none of that is the confession our author has in mind. And it will not support us. 
We must actually let go of the confession of our deeds if we're going to hold on to the confession of Christ. Just as the passenger on a sinking ship must let go her jewelry box in order to cling to a life preserver. It's not a list of our good deeds, nor even the confession that we believe that we must hold firmly. And for that reason, I'm not comfortable with the NIV's translation here. Our confession is not that we profess faith, as if faith were its object. Faith in one's own faith is a dead end. It can't lead us where we want to go. Nor will it sustain us on the day that the word of God penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Faith in faith will fail us. But faith in Jesus, the Son of God, will uphold us. Set your eyes on your own faith, and a strange thing always happens. Your faith grows translucent, and then transparent, and then it disappears altogether. Set your eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, and faith grows solid, vigorous, certain. It's not our faith we confess, but our Savior. There's good reason to hold firmly to that confession. Jesus, the Son of God, has gone through the heavens. This is one of those things that you come across in this particular book, in the book of Hebrews, that's hard for us to understand. What does it mean that Jesus has gone through the heavens, and why should that encourage us to hold firmly to our confession? In first century Hebrew thought, the heavens were a big place. And and Second Enoch, a book that our author knew, he doesn't quote, although Second Enoch is quoted in the New Testament. The heavens are thought to exist on seven, and I'll say for lack of a better word, levels. And each level, separate from the others, and comprised of various regions. The Bible itself doesn't mention seven heavens, although St. Paul mentions the third heaven. The biblical writers do see heaven as this vast and glorious place. The highest realm of heaven was thought to be the place from which God reigns. So when our author says that Jesus has passed through the heavens, what he wants us to get is that Jesus didn't stop at the first heaven or the second. He continued to the, the, the place of the glorious presence, the throne room of God, and he entered there. This is the same truth expressed in chapter 1, where our author wrote that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. We have an inside man in the throne room of heaven. That he's gone or passed through the heavens is a fascinating thought. If we were to pass through the United States from east to west, maybe some of you have done this, what glories we would see. Maine's rugged shoreline, New York's fair Adirondacks, the upper Midwest Great Lakes, the vast western plains, the majestic Rockies, the jaw-dropping Grand Canyon, the formidable deserts of the southwest, the breathtaking sunsets off the California coast. But what would it be to pass through the heavens? What sights might we see there? To compare our glories to it are like comparing a painting of the mountains to the real thing. Or comparing the train set on the table in the basement to Grand Central Station. 
The heavens hold things that eyes have not seen, ears heard, or mind conceived. But our high priest, that is the one appointed by God to represent us, has gone through the heavens. The word that's translated gone through is used fairly often in the New Testament, almost always denotes travel through a geographical region. For example, this is the word used to describe Jesus' route through the border region of Samaria. As such, the word's not theologically significant. But there are two exceptions, two uses of the word that are theologically important. One here, where Jesus passes through the heavens, and the other in Romans chapter 5, where death passes through the earth. According to that passage, death entered the world of men through one man, the way a germ enters a school through one child. But death was not like a virus that attacks one out of every 20, or even an epidemic that attacks one out of every 10. Death is the true pandemic. It attacks everyone on the face of earth. It passes through humanity the way a tsunami passes through some South Pacific atoll, sweeping away everyone and everything in its path. But then, death on its journey met Jesus on his. Death was like a great wave washing away an entire coastline. But when it reached this solitary figure, it broke and receded into the sea. Death reached its high water mark at the cross. We live in the time of death's recession, the ebbing time. The tide of death is ebbing, the tide of life rising, rising to swallow up everything mortal and its endless joys. But the ebbing time is still a time of struggle. And what resources do we have to support us in the ebbing time? Verse 15 tells us what we have and what we have not. Our author begins with what we have not, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Some people, and it seems from statistics that the number is growing, are incapable of sympathy. According to Douglas Labeer, who heads the Center for Adult Development in, in D.C., many Americans are, his words, catastrophically unempathetic suffering from what he calls empathy deficit disorder. He says that Americans grow up in a culture that focus, focuses on acquisition and status and actually unlearn empathy skills. When our focus is on acquisition and status, we'll do our best to avoid anything unpleasant, including the suffering that friends and family are going through and the pain that they feel. I've just been with people this week who are going through great amounts of pain. And one of them said, I'm surprised by our friends, our close friends, who haven't said anything to us. If we're focused on acquisition and status, we'll just want our friends to get over it so that we can move on, so that we can get back to what's important to us. Imagine that Jesus, the Son of God, suffered from empathy deficit disorder. Lord Jesus, we would pray, my life is falling apart. My spouse is unfaithful. My children are out of control. The doctor says there's a suspicious spot on the CT scan. I feel like 
I'm going out of my mind. Like I can't take anymore. Won't you help me, Lord Jesus? To which he would respond, other people have it a lot worse than you. You need to buck up. You need to look on the bright side of things. That's not our Lord Jesus. The Gospels record that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word compassion is a very visceral word in Greek. He felt their pain in his gut. He felt it because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When God became man as a baby human, he was born not into wealth and privilege, He was not sheltered from hardship or poverty or pain. He experienced the whole gamut of human suffering and the whole range of human emotions. And because he was perfect, he experienced these things to their limit. His emotional responses were not like ours because they weren't blunted by self-protection and by sin. He felt everything. And so our author says Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets us. He gets us like no one else does. He takes into account our deep fears, our limited abilities, our lack of comprehension. He doesn't treat us, as the psalm puts it, as our sins deserve, but he treats us as our weaknesses require. I'm going to tell a story on one of our deacons, John Underwood, because he's not here today. I can tell this story. Um, We're having problems with our computer network. And so I asked John if he could come help. That's how he makes his living. He's really good at it. So he came to my office, and he started pounding on my keyboard with a violence and speed that really surprised me. It looked like he was attacking it. And I asked him to show me what he was doing so I wouldn't have to bother him the next time something went wrong. So he showed me. It's something approaching the speed of light. John did not sympathize with my weaknesses, my lack of understanding about how computer networks function, my clumsiness in picking up new things. He just assumed that I would be able to follow him through hyperspace. (laughs) He was wrong. (laughs) I suspect he didn't want me messing things up, so he didn't want me to get what he was doing. But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We do have a high priest who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. The word translated tempted here is broader than our English word, which is usually limited to the solicitation to do evil. This word, though, has the idea of being tested by difficulty, hard times, irritating people. And, of course, it's in hard times and with irritating people that we're most tempted to do evil. Jesus knows all about hard times and irritating people. He knows all about temptation. He knows more about it than you do. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows weariness and discomfort and danger. He knows better than anyone what it is to be misunderstood. He experienced to a degree we can never imagine what it feels like to be abandoned. He knows what it feels like to see death approach. He knows the ins and outs of these things and more. He endured temptation to a point 
none of us will ever reach. When he suffered through these painful trials, like us, he was tempted to go outside God's will to meet his needs. But this he never did, not even to save his life. He was without sin. But we are with sin. Has any help? Has he any help to offer us who have sinned over and over again? The answer to that is no, if all we want to do is go on sinning. Or if he offers help, it will be the help of pain and trial and suffering. No, if all we want to do is go on sinning, the devil has plenty of help to offer, and he's good at it. But if we want to follow him into a life of love and sacrifice, he will give us all the help we need. He will meet us right where we are, however far from God that may be, and lead us into faith and obedience into a new life. He, better than anyone else, knows the path. If you're going into the wilderness, who would you want for a guide? A man who had made it five miles into the woods before he gave up and turned back? A man who made it 50 miles in before he quit and was airlifted out? Or a man who had crossed the wilderness and knew every step to take? Jesus crossed the wilderness of temptation and he reached the other side without giving in and without giving up. He's better prepared to help us than anyone else. And paradoxically, that preparation came through suffering. Wise Amy Carmichael writes, I've noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. But Jesus suffered our sorrows. He knows our weaknesses. He took our sins. He is the wounded healer whose power to help flows out of much suffering. That being so, our author urges us, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. At God's right hand sits the wounded healer, ready to receive those who come to him. And notice the throne of God is not called the throne of judgment or the throne of power even, but the throne of grace, the place where grace is dispensed to those in need. The author says we should go confidently knowing that our sympathetic high priest sits at God's right hand. If we do, we shall receive mercy and find grace. Mercy, because we often fail. Grace, because we can and God's people need us to succeed. This mercy and grace will help us in time of need. Have you known any of those times lately? The Greek here is something like that we might receive mercy and find grace for timely help. Timely help. When we're tempted, when we're tired, when we don't know what to do, when we do know what to do but don't want to do it, God will help us. 
but we must approach him. We must become experts in approaching God. We should go to the throne of grace so often that we know the way in the dark. Especially that we know the way in the dark. A couple weeks ago, our kids came home from where they are in different places in the United States, and Karen and I drove to Chicago to pick up our son, Brian, at the airport. And I left without thinking about taking directions. I thought about it on the way. I thought, maybe I want that. And I hadn't been to O'Hare for a couple of years. But I still remember the way. Got there without any problem. But had he been dry, flying into Midway, that would have been a different story. If you rarely go to a place, you may not find it when you need to. Some of us go to the throne of grace so seldom that we're not sure we can even find it. But we must become so familiar with the way to the throne of grace that we can find it in our sleep. We should be able to draw a map to the throne of grace and lead others there. Let 2012 be the year that we beat a path to the throne of grace. We may think that God has a throne of grace. We come to a need and a throne of glory we come to in worship. And yet another throne of judgment we come to at death. Since all those thrones are mentioned in the Bible. But that is not the idea. There's one throne, not three or more. It's not like you can go to the throne of grace and somehow escape the throne of judgment or worship at the throne of glory but leave without receiving grace. See, don't just go to the throne seeking grace. Go seeking God. And you will find grace aplenty. I think it's interesting that we will receive mercy, but we will find grace. Now, it's possible that the author uses those different verbs for stylistic reasons. That may be all there is to it. But I can't help but wonder if there's something more here. We receive mercy the moment we ask, but we find grace when we surrender and obey. Grace is replenished as it's used. If you'll not use what you have, you'll not find more. You don't get to store it up any more than the Israelites got to store up manna. You'll always have the grace you need, but it only comes to you as you use it. And remember what Amy Carmichael said? I've noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there's rarely very much power to help. She went on. I have wondered if it can be the same in the sphere of prayer. Does pain, accepted and endured, give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life? some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed, would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times yes. And surely it must be so, for the further we're drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord, the more tender we are toward others. God, she says, never wastes his children's pain. He didn't waste his son's pain. 
It brought about our salvation. And he will not waste yours either. But you might. I've seen people do it. You waste your pain when you keep God out of it, when you refuse to let him in, when you reject his purpose and follow your own. But his purpose for you is better, richer, fuller, more glorious than your purpose for yourself. And when you surrender to his purpose, everything in your life takes on meaning. That's not to say you won't have struggles. In the ebbing time, there are plenty of those. But it does mean you will have mercy when you fall and grace so that you can stand. Let me say one last thing. I titled the sermon to have and have not. Partly because I've seen the Bogart film probably too many times over the years. But also because of verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. The word translated have is an important one to the author of Hebrews. We, he says, have an anchor to keep our souls steady in the storm. We have confidence to go to God in worship and prayer, knowing that he'll receive us. We have lasting possessions better than earth can afford. We have a cloud of witnesses cheering us on. We have an altar to which others have no right of access to have and have not. If we have Christ, we have all we need. If we have him not, we have a deficiency that cannot be compensated. Do you have or have not? And does he have you? Let's pray now. Lord, I think of all the times that I and your people have pursued our own purposes without thought of yours right into pain and suffering that could have been filled with meaning and power. And we've suffered for it, Lord, forgive us. I pray that in this year that lies ahead of us, we might not only have Christ and hold our confession, but that you might have us, all of us. And having us make instruments of us to bring grace and mercy to others. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.